Happy Thursday, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This is Brandon Bustide, President of University Partners and Global Head of Learn, Work, Innovation at Kaplan. And I'm delighted to have what will be another very exciting conversation today. Uh, my guest, Rachel Carlson, who is the founder and CEO of Guild Education, joins me. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for carving out the time to, uh, to chat today. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, let's start. I know, uh, obviously, there's quite a few folks on this uh, feed who have probably heard about Guild Education. Anybody who's involved in higher ed, workforce development, uh, the, the education as a benefits movement, which you guys have largely been credited with driving, um, is probably familiar with it. But for those who aren't, I would love to just have you tell us a little bit about your background that, that people might not know about that led you to Guild, um, and a little bit about Guild, just so we have that as, a, as an opening framing. Sure. Um, let's see. Background and founding story weave together closely as do any founding CEO stories. Um, but broadly, I had mostly worked on political campaigns, had the great fortune on, of being on, I think, what was one of the great campaigns, the 2008 Obama campaign, and got even more fortunate to follow the team into the transition and then into the, the White House um, in, in, you know, the whatever job they would let me have. And I was fortunate to uh, work with Don Gibbs as his assistant. Um, and that uh, he was serving as head of presidential personnel at the time, which is effectively HR for the White House. So that was a really, that was my first foray into understanding how human capital works. Um, and you really start from scratch with an administration. So that was great. And then also heightened my interest in education reform, both higher ed and uh, K-12. And I then spent some time in the community college space with American Honors and my co-founder of Guild, Brittany and I, we're both community college uh, coaches and team leads uh, for American Honors, where we just really got to go under the hood and better understand the American community college system and learned what were the challenges that were um, in, in effect making it nearly impossible for students to succeed in American community colleges, despite those schools trying hard. We had just basically set up a system that wasn't designed to create completion and wasn't designed to tie to the workforce. And that just fueled a lot of ideas and led us to effectively what's, what is the, the Guild model, which is how do we better connect the 88 million working adults in the US who we know need to go back to school, 64 million of them who haven't completed college, another 24 million of them who maybe have a credential or certificate, but we know aren't fully job steady for careers of the future and will need to go back to school to upskill or reskill before they retire. And we, we realized that working with the best universities in the country we could be an effective partner with them, adding our coaching and advising and our, our marketplace of, of learning providers and really approaching education more from a marketplace perspective. Um, and so we, we went after that work and we found great employer partners who wanted to do the work with us. And we think of the employer as effectively a, a channel to get to know their workers because many of that 88 million population work for the Fortune 1000, um, but also as a payer. And we've been able to convince them to play a really important role in reducing student debt and effectively eliminating it for tens of thousands of their workers by helping them see how education can be a tool for recruitment or retention or upskilling or transitions. And so you're right, we did we did craft that education as a benefit concept, um, which is the value prop for the employer. Uh, but what we're trying to think about doing, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, where we're expanding and growing is, is really thinking about how many ways might we align incentives across higher ed and employment so that the workers, the 88 million Americans, have the chance to go back to school debt-free. 
Yeah, it's really been amazing to watch. I mean, I, I've been a fan of, you know, what you guys have been doing from the earliest. that I, I remembered it, you know, in terms of uh, being aware of Guild. And, I mean, you, you, I just want to double down on a couple things you said that I think are so important about the, the movement that, that you're helping lead here, which is um, you're helping make higher education more effective and more accessible to more people, right? Like, that's just a simple way of looking at what you've done. And, you know, doing it through an employer as a partner uh, doing it as a result of a job benefit for working there. Um, it's really, you know, an incredible framing. And, you know, you, you mentioned it, but employers have always struggled with how to help um, employees make the most of ongoing education, upskilling, reskilling. Like a lot of employers have had education tuition reimbursement type programs, but very few employees take advantage of it. And, you know, there were lots of red tape involved in taking advantage of it. And I think you guys have played a huge role in helping employers scale and make it more effective, helping the employees with the support infrastructure they need to, uh, to be able to continue both working and learning as students and employees at the same time. But one of the things I think is huge about this is that, you know, you guys are helping make higher education less expensive. You know, I always joke that there's only two forces helping lower the cost of higher education, Mitch Daniels, and the education as a benefits movement. And what I mean by that is higher ed, you know, costs have been skyrocketing over 400% increase in tuition since the early 1980s. But when you guys go out and form these partnerships, you're able to kind of essentially help universities and employers negotiate bulk rate discounts on tuition. Employees are getting this as a benefit, right? There's tax incentives. There's, I mean, just tell me a little bit more about the, the, the nuts and bolts of how it works, because everybody in this model wins. The university does, the student slash employee does, and the employer does. Yeah, uh, that's something we're really proud of. And it, it also nicely aligns with our ability to be a B Corp with incentives alignment and, and something I care a lot about. Uh, interestingly enough, it dates back to the conversations we had with universities six years ago when we were watching how difficult it was for our students to navigate the community college system and obviously seeing the travesty of some of the for-profit universities at the time, this is 13, 14, um, and trying to figure out like where should low-income working adult learners go to get high-quality outcomes at low costs, right? You can put it on a two-by-two two, and that's how we think about it at Guild. What is that upper right quadrant of high-quality, low cost? And when we kept, we went to all the schools with the best outcomes, right? And we asked them, what is your, why aren't you bigger? Why aren't you serving more students? Like, why is there so much fragmentation with 3000 universities around the country when half of them, you'd be better off not going at all. Like the opportunity cost is greater than not going at all to half of the schools in the US. And what the 300 best schools said to us again and again and again, number one problem, Google, Facebook, Google, Facebook, Google, Facebook. And it was because of the acquisition cost. And, and you know this well, the acquisition cost of acquiring a single student had crept up you know, nearly to $5,000 at the bachelor's degree level and up to $15,000 at the master's degree level. So our view was that's not creating any value except to Google and Facebook shareholders and at, they're doing okay. So if we X that out of the market, think about how much discretionary funding there is then to one, pass back to the student and lower tuition costs, two, pass to the employer if they're paying, um, three, to help the university better invest in their core services, instruction, you know, the, the work that's happening in 
the classroom and then four to pay for support services, which is primarily what we offer through our coaching and our technology and all, all the tools we offer the student. And so that's effectively what we've done is we've said, take what used to be your Google and Facebook marketing budget or your TV, if you were, if they were up on TV and redistribute that to tuition discounts, to your own investment in your core curriculum and faculty and instruction, and three, to cover our technology and services. And by doing that, we've been able to effectively, you know, take a piece of the pie and better distribute it so that everyone wins. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you just added some additional explanation to it, right? Like a, a lot of folks are just unaware of all the different, you know, aspects involved in like just the point about student acquisition costs for universities. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's gotten much more challenging and, and all, all levels, ground students, online students, bachelors, masters, you name it. Um, I want to dive in more, obviously, to some of the work that Guild is doing and what you see on the horizon, but I, I, I didn't want to miss having you talk about the initiative you led uh, that was framed around Stop the Spread. So right when, you know, the COVID pandemic became uh, quite obvious uh, in the U.S., I know, I know you essentially took vacation days for a week or two uh, to go and, and, you know, lead an initiative of leading corporations uh, to, to do what was responsible in, in stopping the spread. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? I mean, there, there's been a lot written about you and Guild but that was one of the biggest uh, things I was most impressed with um, from your leadership and would just like people to hear what, uh, what you did there. Yeah, sure. It was sort of an accident, um, to be honest. What happened was uh, a handful of us were all in communication over that first weekend when it was really becoming clear to many of us business leaders that this was a runaway train and that America probably wasn't putting the right policies in place. At the time here in Colorado, we still we had a 14,000 person concert the night before. Our ski hills were still open and the virus was spreading rapidly in Vail. And it, it felt like business leaders didn't need to necessarily wait for our government to make a call and we could go ahead and do something. So a group of us wrote a letter. We went to, we put it online on Medium, went to bed Saturday night, woke up Sunday. And by the end of the day, 1300 CEOs around the country had signed it, a lot of enthusiasm. And then um, the, the New York Times asked Ken Chenault, who, who's on my board and obviously former CEO of Amex, uh, asked us to write an op-ed elaborating on on our letter that had driven, you know, 1300 companies to proactively shut down their offices and start practicing social distance and shelter in place before any of our governments were. Uh, and then we wrote that while we were doing that, we actually helped broker a partnership between GM and Ventec to become the first partnership turning the car factories into ventilator production. And we didn't, we knew nothing about it. We had just taken a stand. And when you do that, sometimes your inbox fills with good ideas. And so we became sort of this catalyst. And then after the, the New York Times letter, um, we just had hundreds of people asking us uh, for support to basically put into practice these kinds of creative partnerships that needed to exist. And Ken and I both love partnerships. It's what he did at Amex for 30 years. It's what we do at Guild. And so I don't, I don't know why it ended up happening that we were doing the work, but uh, we ended up taking time and dedicating a lot of a few weeks and building a team and brought a Bain, a team from Bain together and a bunch of um, support of volunteers who became full-time and ultimately, we're able to put together 85 partnerships like that GM and Ventec deal. And, and happily, Stop the Spread is now merged with Impact Assets, a, a really great impact investing fund that's running a, a billion-dollar COVID relief effort. Mm -hmm. And so the 
uh, Christian Peel and an amazing team are now running that work. And I, I'm just on standby when I can be helpful over the phone, but I'm really proud of them and, and proud that they were able to, to keep the work going. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for your leadership on that. And, uh, and certainly, you know, go, goes to show that, uh, you know, even what you thought was a little bit of an accidental uh, engagement, you know, has turned into to something that's made a very meaningful difference. So, um, so anyway, thank you for that. And, and obviously, Guild was in a good place to do it. You know, the conversations you're having with, you know, corporate leaders and, you know, thinking carefully about people and, you know, the human resources part of these businesses, like that's, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to make a really obvious statement. We're, we're in a whole new world as it relates to a, a whole bunch of things. 45.7 million people have filed for unemployment in the last 14 weeks. Um, we're obviously still in the grips of a global pandemic. The numbers are unfortunately rising rapidly at a national level in the U.S. right now, globally uh, spiking. Um, you know, look, it, we, we've got a whole bunch of other big, big issues on our plates. Um, an anti-racism movement that might be as as strong and powerful as we've as we've ever seen, right? Certainly in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, so, you know, walk me through a little bit about how you and Guild and some of your partners are thinking about all of these challenges, right? Frontline workers and the disruption of employment. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I'd love to have you just start to tell us a little bit about what you're thinking there. Yeah, I think it's an important conversation. So thanks for bringing it up. You know, you look at, at COVID and the impact it's had. Um, it, while on one dimension, the, the disease doesn't discriminate, its impact on various communities, communities of low and middle income, communities of color, communities in rural America or in urban, it has had a disparate impact. In particular, when you look at the the that 45 million that have filed out for unemployment, that is not a, a perfect demographic sample of exactly the United States population. It hits those exact same communities I just mentioned. And so we've spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, if from our role as a partner on helping people access education, but ultimately our mission is to unlock opportunity for America's workforce. Like, what can we do? And so we're obviously still able to create a lot of impact from our core product, which is helping people go back to school. But we've also ventured into job placement and outplacement services and helping folks who lost their job figure out not only what do I want to do next and can I get back on my feet and do I need temporary work, but also what does my career look like and do I need education or do I need career services to get there? And that's work we, we're doing with a number of our companies. Yeah, there, there's a lot of important pieces there. You know, you think about, um, you know, the big distance between somebody who is out of work and a job that might be available out there uh, for, for most cases is now an education or a training gap, right? And, you know, there's, there's potentially some, some forces that will help in that more and more businesses have realized that a lot of work can be done remotely, work we didn't think could or should be done remotely. But there's obviously jobs that just can't be done remotely, right? Yeah. But I really think we're in an era where we had a skills gap when the economy was humming along at three point, you know, low percent uh, unemployment. And, and it was because we just, we had roles and jobs out there that people just didn't have the advanced training or skills to fill. You know, now it's an interesting thing. There's industries that are growing and booming, new, new growth because of the, you know, the COVID disruption. And 
So there's jobs out there. Like last week, I did a call with uh, with the director of learning at Papa John's. They're hiring 20,000 people, right? And so you know, so so that gap between people who are out of work and a job could very well be the biggest gap. Could very well be an education and training gap. So how all organizations can kind of step up to the plate with that. I'm sure you guys are learning, you know, some of these things. I'd be interested in the insights. You know, you think the the big critique of universities by employers has always been they only want to give me a degree. And degrees still have a ton of value, but there's a lot of other shorter non-degree training program that could be incredibly valuable right now. Are you seeing university partners really embrace that uh, in in these in this process, right? Like I, I'm I'm just curious what your your take is on how fast they're moving or not moving around that that idea yeah well i you know we obviously have the benefit of working with some of the most innovative universities in the country so i can sit from my seat and say absolutely and and you know this i mean between purdue global and schools like southern new hampshire and university of arizona and ecornell i mean everyone's moving incredibly quickly to meet the needs of the new economic climate to listen to their students you know the strata data is telling us that Folks who are looking for training and education right now want the shortest training possible that'll prepare them for the next job. And that's right. I think we also have to be mindful of how does that learning stack? So this, this isn't a substitute in saying they therefore never will enter the classroom again after getting the next job. We really need to be helping every learner see the path to a lifelong learning economy. And I, yep. I think our system wasn't structured for that, right? The, the university system, and we, we reward our universities and we measure them based on degree completion. We haven't come up with the right tools and metrics at the federal level. So we got to work on that. Um, but we're seeing all of the activity happen being very responsive to the employees and the employer and and I think that's particularly important for companies that are facing layoffs or redeployment and my thesis is that we're not in a V recession and or the U which is feels like the hot debate on on every channel right now I think we're going to have a W recession because this is the COVID based recession and I think there's a second one coming tied to workforce transformation automation you know, uh, things we're seeing related to the power of machines and how that's going to impact the jobs of people who do or don't work with technology. And so I think we've got to be prepared for that and, and remember that that's what everyone was preparing for before we entered this healthcare-based recession. Right. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's obviously a lot we could talk about there. Um, I, I want to make sure we turn to a couple of questions that have come in too. And by the way, folks who are listening, you know, feel free to type us uh, a note on a question for, for either me or Rachel. But uh, Paul Joy, you made a comment about a few weeks ago. He says, Robert Gates, uh, former Secretary of Defense, said the U.S. needs a fundamentally different economic framework. We also need to direct, uh, you know, need to directly address increasing political paralysis. But you know, his question is, what are the, what's the role of colleges and universities to help rebuild U.S. standing in the world? Um, you know, look, I think we can think about what, what's their role domestically, right, in supporting the upskilling and reskilling and ongoing lifelong learning of, of uh, folks in the country. But what's your, what's your take on that question of, the, of their role in helping rebuild U.S. standing in the world? Yeah, um... You know, said really simply, I believe that talent is equally distributed throughout the world and opportunity is not. And I think the uh, tools that can unlock that opportunity, education's number one. Now, there are others. Uh, there's luck. 
there's the zip code you're born into, there are other factors, but in terms of the kind of opportunity that we're capable of distributing, education's the best one we've got right now um, beyond other structural policy changes. And that again, obviously to his question, sits outside of the higher ed sector. And so I think the best thing higher ed can continue to do is think about ways to equitably distribute education to as many people as possible, but ensuring that that education is high quality. And, I, and that's the tension we've all been grappling with for the last 15 years in this sector. You know, the, the emergence of the 1500 community colleges around the US started with, we just need to provide access, right? Yep. And, then, and then in recent years, we've shifted to a more uh, a secondary, but incredibly important conversation about quality and completion. I think as we look to having education be a tool that can unlock opportunity, we constantly need to hold those two tensions together, access and quality and completion, and they have to sit together because one without the other simply doesn't work. Yeah, and that's, I think that's a theme too of the university partners that you guys have chosen to work with. I mean, obviously, you know, Kaplan sees it through the work we do supporting Purdue Global and Purdue Global is, you know, one of one of your partners there. Um, you know, it is an access and quality mission and, and a scale mission, right? And you, those are all not mutually exclusive, right? Like I continue to be frustrated that we assume that things like quality, right, and, and access, like, you know, are, or quality and scale, let's just talk about scale, are mutually exclusive. So, you know, the, one, of the, one of the things that I, I know you guys have come to realize is that you start, because you have more students, you're able to understand what works better, right? You're able to tweak and modify the support systems, the curriculum, all the things that go into helping a student be successful. And then, you know, it becomes a self-perpetuating flywheel of sorts where, you know, a big university like, you know, Arizona State Universities and, you know, Southern New Hampshire's and Western Governors, they're, they're, they're all being successful for, for certain reasons, right? But one of the themes across that is they've been able to use scale to improve quality. And so I, I'm enthused about that trend because it's, it's almost the opposite of what we've seen with elite higher education, right? Which is keep it capped, don't grow at all. And I'm starting to feel, you know, I, I, I'm a proud graduate of Duke University, but like I, I have a tension with the idea that, you know, there's a limited number of seats and, you know, a lot of elite universities don't want to grow, right? There's a lot of ways to grow and, and that's a mission driven thing, not just a revenue thing. So I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, on that, that tension between quality and scale. Yeah. I think we somehow, and, and you know, there is a role that the media played in this, but obviously so did the admissions offices. We conflated uh, selectivity with quality. The, the quality of the elite higher ed became effectively measured by the selectivity of their admissions office. And we perpetuated that narrative into the, not just every high school in America, but like literally the American dream story, right? We have told people they are more worthy if they achieve something with a high selectivity. That has, that has nothing to do with quality, right? We never, we've never measured our hospitals, which is a, a good analog to education by saying, well, how small do they keep it so that those surgeons only work on the, the fewest best patients, right? Like that just sounds sort of like foolish yeah. to even frame it that way, but that's exactly what we've done in higher education. So I think as soon as you adjust the definition of selectivity versus quality, and you take a more classic definition of quality, which is measured on outcomes and not measured based on the fewest number of people you let in as inputs, then suddenly there 
there's a completely harmonious strategy around quality and scale and access. And so I think that it it's so obvious, but we've just gone so many decades of telling ourselves this story. And I, I think we really have to break the narrative. Yeah, it's a narrative. I mean, we've, we've kind of brainwashed ourselves in a way, right? Like, or we just, we've just taken it for granted now, like, oh, that's the way it works. And, you know, even one of the, one of the studies and analyses I was involved in, uh, there's actually no relationship whatsoever between alumni ratings of the quality of their education and the price tag they paid for tuition, right? So you're like, whoa, you know, like there's no relate, which, which says, yes, there are expensive schools that people feel are worth every penny, but it also tells you there's expensive schools that aren't worth it, right? And on the other side, it tells you there's inexpensive ones that are worth, you know, the, you know, several, probably several times their weight in gold. So it's just, but like price doesn't have a relationship with quality in terms of the empirical data, but we have the view that it does. And I like your flaming, framing of conflating selectivity and, and quality. Those are, those are not the same thing. That's a big paradigm shift we, we all have to support. So one of the other things I've, I've, you know, I've talked about recently, and we kind of touched on this, um, you know, higher ed institutions obviously talk a lot about accreditation and you'll hear a lot of them say, oh, you know, accreditation is holding back innovation and, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's bureaucracy involved. And I mean, you know, that, that might be happening to some degree. Um, but, but what's interesting is that you can think of employers in a good sense as a new form of accreditor for institutions. Not that they're going to create like accreditation, but, but it, my point about it is if an employer comes and says, Hey Guild and Hey Guild partner universities, I need X. It's not a degree program. Can you do that for me? And if you go and do it and it's high quality and they value it and they continue to pay for it, that's a form of accreditation. That's a stamp of approval on the value. So I, I say that because I think that's a, um, a, a helpful framework for universities to think about is they can look at employers as not a bureaucracy driven accreditor, but as a new form of validating the value of an institution. I'm just curious if, if that's a way that you guys are thinking about it. Yeah, I think it's an interesting way to think about it. We obviously, we think about, and this is akin to what the what many would say the accreditor's role is, which is to be a third party measurement on quality and impact. And I think employers are an awesome measure of quality and impact because they get a front row seat. They also get to inform the process. And so I think the feedback loops are tighter than maybe the systems we've built for accreditation where a university comes up for it maybe every 10 years with periodic checks. We are in literally weekly conversations with our employers and with our schools um, and able to do transformative things. Like when, when Lowe's worked with us on our skilled traits program, out of the five programs, there were two that they felt like were moderately out of date given the new technology that had emerged um, related to things like the installation of dishwashers, which is a fantastic skilled trades job. And they wanted to influence the curriculum. And so in a matter of weeks, phone calls made, curriculum adjusted, informed by the on the ground knowledge that the Lowe's leadership team has about the technology and the, the job to be done of installing that technology, which is a, a great middle-class job and an awesome one for cashiers to move into. So those are the kinds of things that can happen in a unique format when you put the employer and the university closer together. Yep, no, that's a great example. And um, uh, I'm curious to your answer to this question. Uh, Thor Misko has uh, joined us. He's asking uh, whether Guild is also working to bridge the gap to K-12 as well. So I'm just uh, cu curious what you guys are up to on that front. 
Yeah. Um, my, uh, my personal ideator hat as an entrepreneur is like, God, I want to tackle that. My, my founder CEO of Guild hat staying focused on the mission at the end. We got, we have enough going on right now as we move into more career work and, and focusing more, not just on the learning marketplace we've built, but also job and career marketplaces um, and how to make sure that our students and all the employees we interact with have that access to mobility in their in their careers uh, has us pretty focused on working adults and that's where we've spent a lot of our time but rooting for all of our colleagues and, and friends in the k-12 space who are doing that really important work yeah and so that's a segue to one of your uh recent uh big pieces of news which was the acquisition of entangled solutions uh and i know you talked about it a little bit but the you know the new next chapter initiative that you guys have rolled out what just you tell me a little bit more about Entangled. I'm a big fan of a lot of a lot of the people at Entangled and uh, you know the work they were doing. But um, uh, just give us give us some insights on what 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 that was driven by and what you guys are planning to do with that uh, new team at hand. Sure, um, we're longtime friends um, and collaborators and partners with the Entangled team, and so it was an absolute pleasure to get to bring them onto Team Guild. Um, the the thesis behind it was was really multifold. Uh, on one level, um, we were talking a lot about what would the value proposition to an employer and employee look like during a recession, and we'd been doing work on that in 19, 2019, and so had they. And, We'd been approaching it from the learning marketplace perspective. They were building some technology and a jobs marketplace to help a displaced worker figure out what to do next. That also applied for all of our students uh, in terms of career mobility and, and moving between companies or within their company. So that was one reason we wanted to work with them. Um, second, they built this fantastic consulting team um, that they were using effectively to fund their ventures and studio model, but we thought could fit in really nicely and was they were actually already doing work with some of our clients. We had hired them to do some of that work, both with employers and with universities. Um, and then obviously their leadership team um, with Paul Friedman and their full uh, team that's joined and really supercharged our uh, learning marketplace team as well, given all of their higher ed background and expertise. So uh, it, was, it was a really exciting opportunity for us to, to bring the two teams together. Yeah, and I think it, it speaks to you know the, the need uh, by by leaders at large employers, right, to, I mean, th this is not easy to devise a strategy around what, how they're leveraging education, right? It's getting, in many ways, much more complicated. I, I, I cite frequently the IBM report from 2019 that showed that the average number of days that employers are spending upskilling or reskilling or training employees has jumped from three days to 36 days in the last five years, right? And like that one, first of all, it's hard to even like, you know, wrap your head around that, that type of increase, a 10x increase in the needs of learning, training, development. Like we, I mean, we are going to be struggling to, to sort this out for a while. So obviously, you know, it, it, it seems like the strategy around this is going to be an increasingly in-demand, uh, you know, type of, of service. And uh, I think it's, you know, a great move and obviously one that, uh, that you guys uh, certainly saw coming. So congratulations on that as well. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, Rachel, I appreciate uh, your time today. We're at the 30-minute the marker, and uh, it's just been a delight to talk to you. Thanks for carving out time out of your busy day. Uh, I'll look forward maybe to, uh, you know, making this uh, an annual occurrence where we can connect uh, maybe sometime next year and hear updates on, uh, on the work and progress you're making. So if you're up for that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll try and we'll, we'll schedule an annual uh, visit. 
Uh, absolutely up for that. Honored to be included today. Thanks so much. And thanks for all your great work. We're thrilled we get to partner with you. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. And thanks to everybody who's joined us today. Uh, as a reminder, we've been uh, trying to stick uh, pretty closely to the schedule of Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, the only exception to that is next week. We'll be taking off uh, given the, the 4th of July holiday, um, but we'll be back on July 9th. My guest is going to be John Fry, the president of Drexel University. And we're going to talk all things work readiness, co-op, all kinds of fun. So uh, we'll look forward to uh, having you all part of that on Thursday, July 9th. And the other great news is that in addition to this being available on LinkedIn uh, Live and YouTube, we're also going to have it available on podcasts. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll start to uh, send out some information on that on iTunes and, and uh, different channels. So uh, anyway, thanks for joining us today and hope you all have a great weekend. Thank you.